You're listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 128, featuring Ed Onspock, proprietor of Onspock Autos, a unique classic car dealership near Hershey, Pennsylvania. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, take a road trip with us to the greater Hershey area to meet this week's featured guest, Ed Onsbach. Early contributions to his family's automotive recycling business inspired Ed to grow his own enterprise, Onsbach Autos, a small business internationally known for sourcing and reselling vintage German car parts. If you're in the market to restore a classic European vehicle, this episode is for you. It's time to head to the village of Ono, Pennsylvania. So, let's get revved up. Hello and welcome back, Tubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren. As always, it is so good to have you back with us again this week. In just a few minutes, we'll be learning more about the vehicle recycling business and how that drove today's guest, Ed Onsbach, to create his classic car business of his own, which is focused on vintage vehicles and the parts necessary to restore those. In fact, in today's interview, you'll hear Ed express his affinity for German cars, in particular Porsches. And that ends up being an ideal segue to thank General Manager Nick Ramagosa of our premier OEM sponsor, Porsche Mechanicsburg for the extraordinary opportunity he gave us this past Thursday where we were able to put down 32 miles worth of hot laps at the New Jersey Motorsports Park in Millville, New Jersey. Again, last Thursday, we spent the day there in Millville and the Porsche experience with all of the professionals there giving us instruction and uh, giving tech talks and what have you. We had some amazing times in the Taycan, in the 911, um, particularly in the, in the 911 Carrera S, the Carrera 4S, uh, we were in the Macan, we were in the Cayenne, yeah, really an amazing opportunity to experience those Porsches on a closed circuit. And with that, when I close my eyes, I can still to this point see, hear, feel the adrenaline filled moments, we're taking those sweeping turns at over 90 miles an hour, diving under the bridge, uh, aiming for the apexes, tracking out to the ideal points that they had annotated or marked with the cones on the berms, hearing that low, ooh, that low growl of the twin turbo flat six in the Porsche 911 Prayer S while rocketing down the front stretch. I know I glanced down and saw 127 on the electronic speedo at one point. So huge thank you to Nick and the entire crew for the Porsche experience. Uh, couldn't Everyone there could not have treated us any better. So thank you. Remember, this is your podcast. Together, it's all about car community, car culture. Okay, let's double clutch into this week's trivia question. Here we go. Each year, how many cars reach their end of useful life and then end up being recycled? Multiple choice question, four choices. A, 11 million vehicles. B, 15 million. C, 27 million. Or D, 43 million. That answer awaits at the end of this episode. So, let's head to Ono, Pennsylvania to speak to automobile recycling and vintage car parts expert, Ed Onspock. Hello, Cubers. This is Darren, and I am calling Ed Onspock. Ed is in Ono, Pennsylvania, and I am here in Carlisle in Studio A. Ed, thank you so much for taking a little time at the end of your your work day on a Saturday with your shop. Well, thank you. I appreciate the call, and uh, I hope uh, hope your listeners find me interesting enough to... uh, bear through the whole program no then i know they will we've got a great community great family of uh, of fans and they do just that and um and ono pennsylvania i I really didn't know much about it until we started to uh connect can you even talk a little bit about uh the community of ono and and your shop being that it focuses a lot on uh i know you grew up in a family that really went through a recycling business and then uh, enjoyed German cars uh, at a relatively young age, but talk a little bit about how you came upon Ono and and how you got into uh, your affinity for all things German automotive. Okay, 
Well, I grew up uh, in a salvage yard. Uh, my father started a, a repair shop uh, back in probably about 1950, and he would buy two cars and repair one of them using parts from the other, and you ended up having a lot of leftover parts. So uh, it developed from just a repair shop into uh, a parts business as well. Um, and he was basically a Ford man. He uh, he loved all Fords and, uh, you know, aspired to work his way up to uh, Thunderbirds and, and later Lincolns. But uh, uh, I grew up in the business, uh, and uh, at one point in time we had uh, well, between 12 and 15 employees, uh, and uh, we were processing... Uh, between three and four hundred cars a year, mm. and we we would buy the the damaged cars or the inoperable cars, take them apart. Uh, we warehoused a lot of the the mechanical parts that we wanted to keep out of the weather, and of course we had a uh, a field where we parked the uh, the car bodies until we uh, either needed parts or until they had no saleable parts left. And then they would go to the crusher and, and be recycled. Uh, I became uh, very involved in the uh, Automotive Recyclers Association, which is an international trade association. And like any trade association, we would share information on on cars and, and uh, methods of recycling, uh, safety, uh, how to deal with environmental requirements. Uh, and uh, by 1990, I worked my way through the association and became president. Oh wow! One of the uh, one of the uh, good parts of that uh, time in, in the Recycler Association was that we had a uh, committee that we called Evaluation and Planning, and so we would take trips to Europe. Uh, there were at Barry, there were seven to nine people on the committee and we would go to see what they're doing in Europe because at that point in time uh, in the uh, late 80s through the through the mid 90s uh, Europe was pretty much ahead of the US in in recycling not only uh, cars but you know plastics aluminum and, and other waste products so we got to visit uh, uh, Mercedes, BMW. Uh, we were at the uh, uh, Sterling facility in England when Sterling cars were still in business. Mm -hmm. We got to go to Jaguar, Browns Lane. Uh, we went to Volvo and their recycling facility. Wow. And in the early years, we found that their problem was they didn't know what was in their car. Oh. They would they would have a dash assembly that had six or eight different plastics that they used to make components. And they would you know, they would put out a bid for we need a heating and air conditioner assembly for under the dash and they would get bids from two or three companies and there was no thought given to you know, what type of plastic are you using? It was a matter of, did it meet our specs? Was it durable and was it efficient? Gotcha. So the EU at uh, one point in time passed a law where at the end of a car's life, the manufacturer had to take it back and recycle it, mm. which was quite shocking. I mean, imagine taking your old uh clapped out, rusted out BMW yep. back to the dealer and handing him the keys and say, hey, recycle that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so they had to uh, uh, standardize what went into the car mm -hmm. so that they knew how to dismantle it and, you know, what pile did you put the heater uh, housing on and what pile did you put the bumper cover on. Uh, so it was it was very interesting times and it was very educational in that you finally figured out uh, hey we built this 
product. And when it comes to the end of the life, we got to figure out how to deal with it and recycle it. Mm-hmm. Fiat had, had a very interesting program in that they tried to close the loop in that uh, they would write specs for uh, parts of, of the car that and required recycled materials so that uh, a car that uh, the plastics typically degrade every time they're recycled. Okay. So you would start with something like a grill, which the showpiece of, of any car, mm-hmm. uh, and very, very strict requirements from the manufacturer. Well, at the end of the life, they would take that grill and they would grind it up, and now it was uh, the plastic was only uh, sufficient for like a glove box door or center console. And then at the end of the life of that center console, they would grind it up again. And now it's maybe only good enough to do a trunk mat or mm-hmm. the insulation under the carpet. Okay. Uh, but uh, they had, you know, they had a very good program put together. Uh, and fortunately, uh, being an Italian company, they had backing of the Italian government for this program to help fund it. And it was somewhat contained uh, within Italy. So they didn't have the geography problem of, you know, cars that are far away. Sure. Uh, so they, the, all the manufacturers learned to cope with those requirements, and, uh, you know, the cars became much more recyclable. That makes sense, yeah. It, it, it seems to me, too, that um, Fiat did, a, in my mind, kind of an innovative approach, like you said, closing the whole life cycle loop in a, in a way. Have, have EU restrictions only gotten more intense uh, since that time period, to your knowledge? Yes, they, they have continued to uh, increase the percentage of the car that would be recycled. Uh, the last claim that I saw was about 90%. Okay. Uh, what has the U.S. done to improve our process, at least in the last 10 years that you can speak to? Well, the uh, one of the things that that people learned from from the EU regulations was that uh, the manufacturers in the U.S. didn't want to be saddled with those government requirements, and so they started to recycle on their own, trying to prove that you know our cars can be recycled, and we don't need the government laws to make that happen. Gotcha. Uh, and so the U.S. went through that same process of learning what materials did we use to build this car and how are we going to deal with them at the end. That makes so, sense. Uh, the, uh, they'll take an old car or car body that's been crushed and they run it through a shredder, which actually shreds the car into pieces oh, about the size of your fist. Wow. And then the easy part is the steel and cast iron. You run it through a magnet. The magnet will lift that out of the uh, shred, and you know that they're easy to recycle. Then they'll use uh, centrifuge. Uh, in that, different materials will, uh, if you spin the table, they'll fly off at different speeds. You know, due to density and weight. Right. Sure. Sure. Uh, but there's there's still so really based on essentially there's the centrifugal force separating all the elements. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still a lot of of what they call fluff, and the fluff is the carpets, the uh, upholstery, you know, the the seat foam, that kind of thing, that uh, you know just. Uh, often just goes to an incinerator. Got it. Okay. Wow. Well, it's good to hear at least that we're, we're catching up or as a, as a nation, at least 
doing a little bit, we're a little more mindful of it, if you if you will. Yes, and I and I think I think the U.S. is doing a good job now. I think we can um, put our recycling programs uh, up against those in Europe, uh, and uh, we can be proud of what we're doing here. That's good to know. Very very good. We'll talk a little bit more about how. I mean, obviously. You told about uh, your father's business and, and what have you. Um, I know you have a, a penchant for things German and, and Porsche. Uh, when did you first get behind the wheel of a Porsche? When did you first own a Porsche? Uh, maybe, maybe talk a little bit about kind of that, uh, okay. the niche of, of your focus, and then which then has developed into Onspock Auto, and, and feel free to talk more about your personal your business. Okay. Well, and, and growing up, my, like I said, my father was a Ford fanatic, and so being the teenage son, you had to rebel in some manner, and so, you know, my mine was German cars. Right, right. Um, I wasn't allowed to grow long hair, so, you know, <laughs> drive a German car, that'll teach him. Uh, right. And so, got involved uh, with whatever came through the business mm-hmm. in that, you know, if, if uh, a Volkswagen came in and it had uh, damaged fenders, they were easy to repair. And so I'd drive one of those for a while until we would sell it. Uh, and uh, Mercedes, a number of those came through as well. Uh, and then uh, I think one of the first Porsches we bought was a... Uh, was a dark blue 356 uh, B, which would have been like a 61 or two. Mm-hmm. Iconic. And uh, yeah, we found that uh, that particular car wasn't repairable, so we parted it out, and we found that there was a real demand for the parts. Uh, and we ended up, as a business, uh, doing more and more of the import cars. And so we got to be known for for that, uh, and we had a uh, a large following. I mean, I'll go to I'll go to car meetings today, some car club or a swap meet, and bump into somebody. And when he finds out what my name is, he says, "Oh, were you related to the guy who had the you know the parts yard back near Fort Indian Town Gap?" And he said, "Yeah, I, I drove a TR6." You know, and I'd respond by saying, oh, did I sell you a head or did I sell you wire wheel splines? <laughs> right, right. We could, you know, if if the guy called on the phone and said, hey, I'm driving a, a 1988 Audi 100, I could lay out a kit for him. You know, <laughs> well, do you need window regulators? Are you looking for a heater control? Or is your power steering rack leaking? <laughs> And it it was very interesting in that from that end of the business, from mm. our end of the business, we learned what the flaws were in cars. Right, sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, some cars uh, were not, not good parts cars. And so, you know, that was a good car to own and drive. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so anyhow, the, the 356 parts car led to another parts car and we you know we started making a point to try to buy those uh, because they were such good parts cars and then uh in about 73 we found a uh, uh we found a stolen car uh insurance company the car had been stolen the police recovered it the insurance company now owned the car and so we bought it, uh, it was a 1970 911T. Uh, had no damage other than it, you know, had been impounded and sat for six months or so. And I got to drive that, and that that car just uh, was a world of difference. You know, I could, uh, not only was that car a high-performance car, but the quality of the steering and brakes got me out of trouble a number of times. Um, I, would imagine, and, and the, I mean, that's, uh, 
I know we've all had those moments where you think, I probably shouldn't have uh, walked away from that night out driving or whatever. So I understand that. Yes. Yeah, yeah I fortunately uh, uh, wasn't a drinker, mm-hmm. but I still did foolish things in cars. Don't, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and I think don't let all... me off that list. Yeah, I, I think we all can say that we've uh, been on that list to some degree as far as maybe taking a back road too fast or anything like that. But yeah. I hear you. So I well, and and fooling with the with the Porsches, uh, I got involved in the the local club. Uh, PCA is the the national Porsche club, uh, but the the Central Pennsylvania Porsche Club uh, is a strong group that uh, uh, well, back in the seventies uh, and eighties, you had to stick together just for uh, technical information. Uh, who were, who can work on my car? Where can I get parts? And so the function of the car club was to, you know, help me and help the other guy get his car running and keep it running. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through that, I met uh, a friend, Dennis, who was a real Porsche fanatic. I mean, he was, uh, well, he was a Porsche fanatic down to the bone and uh, <laughs> he and I hit it off and then we started traveling uh, to Porsche meets together and we also uh, bought some cars and took them apart, sold the pieces we even manufactured a few parts uh, to restore the 356 cars mm-hmm. uh, and so he and I would travel to the uh, 356 Porsche meet in Europe they have one a year and a different country would host it. So we've been to uh, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, mm. uh, Switzerland, France, uh, and uh, oh, we've been to Italy also. Wow. For those, those kind of meets. Uh, and we also got to learn to know some people at the factory. Even better. So, yeah. And that was fun. And we were, we were sitting around at, at a meet, and uh, the the gentleman who was in charge of the uh, restoration and custom uh, shop for Porsche uh, was there. And we were generally talking, how's your, you know, do you have kids? What's your family like? And he says, oh, I have a daughter that uh, is learning to be a doctor. She's in medical school right now. And we said, oh, well, it would really look good in her resume if she would come to the Hershey Med Center uh, for a semester. You know, and it's one of those foolish things you say in conversation, (laughs) and he called our bluff. (laughs) So uh, we were able to make that happen. Another guy in the Porsche Club was working uh, on the artificial heart program. So he knew who to talk to and how to make it happen. She came over here for a semester. and uh, went to Hershey Med Center uh, to their school. And so now we are lifelong friends. And anytime we yeah. got to, to Germany, you know, well, hey, stop in. I'll, we'll walk around the factory. We'll take you here or there. Uh, we got into Weissach, which is the Porsche uh, test facility. And... Uh, they wouldn't let us drive, but we did get rides around the Weissach test track. Wow, what, that's incredible. That Even just the ride from the right seat would be great. Yes. Oh, yes. And and we got a ride in a, uh, a 930 Turbo. The the guy driving uh, was Steck Kenick was his name, and of course you remember his name. Yeah. Uh, and he was probably showing off for the tourists, but... We took a lap in the 930 Turbo, and it was just amazing mm, mm. what the car could do and what he could do with the car. Yeah, you put those two together, and a lot of magic will happen. Right. Oh. And and then we got to go to the Porsche Museum, and uh, we got to go to the uh, secret warehouse in downtown Stuttgart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just those kind of connections that helped build with Porsche. Uh, building uh, an affinity on my part for the Porsche brand. Uh, We got to go to uh, Austria uh, to 
a little town called Gamund where they built the first portion. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so... And was uh, that Frederick himself? Or Frederick? Uh, Ferdinand. 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 I'm sorry, my bad. Ferdinand. Yeah, Ferdinand. Well, what, what occurred was they, they had the design facility in Stuttgart, uh, and that's where they were working on the VW Bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would have been uh, Ferdinand Sr. Okay. And uh, when when we started to bomb Stuttgart, uh, we sent a bomb through the roof of their design studio. Uh, and at that point, the Porsche family and four or five of their engineers and their families all went to Austria. I see. Uh, basically to hide from the war, okay. you know. That's how you survived the war. And they were down there, they were doing repairs to farm equipment and tractors just to, you know, make a living. Mm-hmm. And they uh, were working out of a sawmill is where they finally uh, built the uh, the first Porsche using a lot of VW components. Gotcha, okay. Now that makes sense. Wow. You have seen some cool, cool places. Then I mean, that, your your travels are are enviable. That's amazing. There's no substitute for dumb luck. <laughs> well, sometimes we're blessed with it, and when we do, we have to enjoy it. That's for sure. Well, that's excellent. Talk a little bit about um, Onspock Auto and and what you're doing today. I know that it's trying to source parts and. Um, I know you have some vehicles on property. I was on your site looking, but go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, your your enterprise. Sure. Uh, Unspark Autos, our, our world headquarters is in downtown Ono, mm-hmm. and uh, it's our, our only facility at this point. We have uh, uh, three employees, so it's a small operation. Sure. We buy and sell uh, a variety of cars, but uh, our focus is on older Porsches, and what I do is uh, uh, search for Porsches, and uh, I'll buy cars that, uh, usually a car that somebody bought, they said they were going to restore it, and they took it home, they took it apart, it's now in boxes, mm-hmm. and five or ten years later, they decide that, you know, I'm never really going to restore that car. Sure. So we'll bring it back to to our shop, and we'll put it back together in a fashion. You know, you put the bumper on with two bolts, you put the headlights in with one screw as a way of doing an inventory. Gotcha. Because the part, all the parts are not in the boxes as promised. So then we'll we'll go to our our inventory and we'll pull out pieces and try to make a complete kit, and then we'll sell it as a kit. For someone else to restore. I see. That's interesting. I, I, I'm glad you explained that a little, a little further. It, um, it makes a lot more sense of your business model then. Okay. Uh, yeah, and as we all know, it's difficult to restore a car. It takes a lot of patience mm-hmm. and a lot of funding. Sure. And you can, you know, you can only turn out so many cars. That's right. Whereas what we're doing. Our finished project, our finished product is a project. Sure. So there it is. Here are the photos. And uh, we sell uh, uh, a lot of them go back to Europe. No kidding. Okay. But we, uh, we've had great success with eBay. And mm-hmm. I have a number of customers now that we've developed where if a certain car comes in, would just go to them directly because it's it's the kind of car they like and, and we don't have to uh, go through the advertising and the, the whole eBay routine. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm learning that they're taking a lot of these cars um, and I had a fellow uh, in Italy and another uh, customer in the Netherlands who said we buy the car, we bring it home and then we dismantle it and the mechanical side of things we uh, restore and repair and rebuild in our shop and the bodies we'll send to uh, Eastern Europe uh, uh, 
Slovak Republic, uh, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, where there are people who 15 years ago they were building MiG fighter jets. Oh, wow. And so now they have the skills, they have the equipment, uh, and they're willing to work for hard currency. Um, so they can, my customer can get the body work done um, at a very reasonable rate. Of course, yeah. And skilled and, labor, too. You know, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, I'll look at a car and say, well, you know, we're going to have to buy a fender for that car mm-hmm. if we're going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And they'll look at it and they'll say, yeah, we're going to have to make a fender for that car <laughs> if we're going to fix it. <laughs> and I'm told the quality of their work is outstanding. Yeah, that's terrific. So they'll just uh, make one from scratch. Sure. Yeah, that's really a pretty neat process. And you've uh, obviously you mentioned it in passing, but just the dozens and dozens of of friends you've and these friendships you've forged globally uh, it's quite remarkable well i'm a rather likable guy well i know that yeah it's, it's, <laughs> it's self-evident i mean come on Ed. <laughs> you know and and it's and it's the cars that are the the connecting factor yes sir uh and i think that's with with any car club mm-hmm. any brand of car you you get to uh you know, it it starts out. It's all about the car, and it moves on to uh, the people. Yes, it does. And I've met some great people, uh, people that I've been in touch with for you know twenty years or more. And uh, you know, they several of them. Well, they sold their Porsche. Uh, they're they're going to retirement, and. Uh, they still like to call and talk about, you know, the cars and what's going on. And um, a lot of the swap meets I go to are are uh, as much social as they are about swapping parts. Of course, yeah. Especially now when we've all been so self, uh, and, you know, everyone's been a bit marooned with the situation in the world. Yes. Uh, yeah, people want to get out. Uh, I went to uh, Swap Meet two weeks ago in uh, uh, Mentor, Ohio, which is near Cleveland. Um, and a former Porsche dealer, Stoddard Imported Cars, uh, is now doing um, parts, restoration parts. They've sold the franchise and the new car end of the business, but they keep the parts business going and they supply a lot of parts for the 356 and the early 911 cars and even the 914s at this point. So uh, it was a it was a tough meet. It was actually the first one of the year uh, that that uh, I got to go to because of, of COVID, and uh, we had it rained uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday before the meet. So the turnout was rather slim because a lot of people make up their mind, you know, Thursday or Friday, am I going to this meet on Saturday? It actually rained Saturday morning, but uh, by about 9 o'clock it had started to dry out, and by 10, 30, 11 o'clock the sun was out. Mm, yeah. So got to see a lot of people that uh, I haven't seen all year. And we talked Porsche, and we did buy and sell some parts. Uh, not a high volume meet because uh, the the hardcore the vendors were there who brought parts and and bought a space or two, but we didn't have a lot of uh, outside walk in people that were looking for for individual parts, uh, and. Uh, I ended up coming home with uh, probably twice as many parts as I took out to the meet because people, at the end of the day, you know, they didn't want to drag the the same parts home again. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to come to agreement. And so now I have a fresh supply of parts to add to the next project we put together. That's good. Yeah, you're... Keeping uh, the, the back lot or the uh, the back room inventory where it should be—that's terrific. Got to got to support the uh, U.S. economy. Yes, indeed. 
And then we have another swap meet coming up uh, uh, this Saturday on the 19th. Is that the Liberty Forge one you were telling me about? That's the one at Liberty Forge at the golf course, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was originally scheduled for Ski Roundtop, and uh, they became concerned about having a a group of people uh, meet there uh, because it, you know, we'll probably have, uh, I don't know, 100, 150 people show up. So uh, they became very nervous, and then the meet was moved up to Liberty Forge, which is only about four or five miles away. Ski Roundtop was was always a favorite meet uh, back in the uh, early 80s. The Central Pennsylvania Porsche Club put together a swap meet. Uh, was was led by Dennis Frick. He was the head of the committee and, and made things happen. And the first two or three years, we met at the dealership, which at that point in time was on the Carlisle Pike over in Mechanicsburg. Uh, we outgrew the dealership's parking lot uh, and his front lot. And it, it got to the point where he was not able to do business because there were so many of us trading old parts. Uh, we then moved to Ski Roundtop. And then we outgrew Ski Roundtop and uh, moved to Hershey, to the parking lot at the Giant Center. And that uh, has become the world's largest uh, Porsche-only swap meet. Uh, that typically takes place in April, and they sell uh, five or six hundred vendor spaces. So it's a big deal. I have to tell you that uh, just the fact that you know the local swap scene, and, and, and I hadn't even known that Liberty Forge one was coming up until the other day when we were planning this interview, and I'm excited to, to try and get over there and check that out. So that's it's so so great to know how you know tapped in and piped in you are on all that. Most definitely. Well, I know that I, I, I don't want to give away any uh, uh, any secrets, but any projects or upcoming uh, things that you're working on that you wanted to share, you know, everything, it, it's your discretion of what you'd like to share with the listeners. Uh, well, I'm always searching for cars, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the last one I came up with uh, was a 1963 356B Coupe. That had been in an accident and then caught fire, so it was very, very rough shape. Uh, and we we uh, found a roof for it, and uh, I had a pair of doors in stock, so uh, we were able to make a kit out of that. And uh, you know that uh, finally got. Uh, uh, an engine for it, and you know now it's it's ready for a new home. The uh, you know as I said, the swap meet's coming up. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you and I had talked about a, a car that uh, uh, I shouldn't be talking about yet because <laughs> you know it's always bad luck to talk about a car that you know. Oh yeah, that car is sold. Well, it's not sold until the, yeah. you know check clears. Uh, but uh, a fella had a uh, uh, 1970-911 coupe that uh, was damaged. He repaired it. Did a nice job with the body work. Uh, and he repaired it uh, to be a, a competition car. Uh, and it was a competition car before he bought it. Well, apparently the guy spun out and it had some damage to the mm-hmm. nose on it and the one rear quarter panel so it looked like he spun around in a circle but uh, I'm trying to get together with him I've been having uh, some transportation problems on my end uh, I've got two car haulers and both of them have bad transmissions right now so the uh, the one we bought a rebuilt trans it's now installed in the truck and I'm hoping by Tuesday or Wednesday, I can uh, get back on the road. Uh, And and I find a lot of cars through the club. Uh, I used to find them on Craigslist, and uh, 
they don't come up as often or I find there a lot of them are overpriced. Uh, Facebook Marketplace uh, is, is a very interesting market. We uh, sell a lot of parts on there and we've sold a number of cars there. Uh, but it's difficult to buy and I find that, that people uh, are concerned about selling their car for too little money because next week it's going to be worth more. Mm-hmm. And and we've seen the Porsche market, as well as a lot of the classic car market, climbed um, and values of cars, you know, they just kept to kept increasing so that uh, you could buy almost anything and if you you had it for six months it was worth more than what you paid exactly uh, now the, the markets have corrected in the last year and a half um, and so people have not always adjusted their price so it, it's getting difficult to buy those cars yeah the, the flip is not so easy as, as it were right mm-hmm. right um, but uh, yeah I find a lot of cars through the network and uh, unfortunately the last uh, well about a year and a half ago I, I bought an estate where the fellow had a Porsche repair shop and uh, he he passed away from from um, the guy raised cars and unfortunately he passed away when he fell off a tractor out in the field. But uh, there was a speedster as part of the package and someone else that I know bought the speedster and then he told me about them. Um, so I missed out on that car, but I ended up buying uh, a 7911, a 69912, uh, about eight 944s, and two van loads of parts. with a uh, 16-foot rental van, box truck, and filled it with parts. So uh, now you bring the stuff home, <laughs> lay it out on the floor, right. and and try to guess what it is. <laughs> right. That's the world's biggest puzzle right there. That's a big puzzle. <laughs> and um, fortunately, a lot of the Porsche parts Okay. And that's a what kind of square footage would that account you know account for? Well, uh, it's a an eight bay garage. Okay. And uh, I don't know the footage offhand. Okay, got it. But it's uh, it's probably thirty by about sixty. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. That's that's fairly so, good. You can work with so it. So I got I got that lead through a uh, a gentleman uh, that I've known for a number of years. In fact, he and I have bought and sold some cars to each other, um, and and that's how I find a lot of them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, grassroots referrals through the through club members, and uh, you know, there are some people that. Uh, when they when it comes time to sell their car, they not only care about the dollar, but they want it done very quietly. Yes. Right. So they don't want to go on eBay. They don't want to uh, take it to a swap meet and advertise it. Um, and we can we can work with people. We've done that, and uh, we've even had cars that uh, have uh, left the country. And so uh, you know, all legitimate, of course, but. They just don't want the stigma of showing up somewhere and, and 
say, oh yeah, well that's that's Fred's old car. Well, no, it's my car now. I don't, you know, I don't uh, care. How, you know, Fred was a great guy and he owned it, but it's not Fred's car anymore. Uh, it's now my car. And I guess. I guess people. Fred, could, yeah, people could say that about uh, wives and girlfriends and things like that too. It's you just you want to you, you want a fresh start. No, I, I, I have to tell you, and I know my listenership will agree, I, I have learned a lot just about um, just the whole recycling, the product uh, you know, life cycle of things, and, and uh, this has been beyond enjoyable and educational. And that's also a re- big part of what I try to give back to the car community through this podcast is give people an opportunity to learn something that they may not otherwise know about. Uh, and so that's, that's really kind of cool. I appreciate that, and I. Well, it is, and and I've enjoyed listening to your your podcast because of that. Well, uh, thank you, thank you. You know, it uh, there's there's a lot more going on than what you see at Barrett Jackson. That's true. That is true. I mean, in fact, uh, I, I I'm a big believer in the little guy and the and the small. You said about having three employees and the in these. Small businesses that dot the U.S. everywhere, and and not only the U.S. but Canada and and uh, all of the the many countries that listen all over the globe. Um, but to me, I I just think it's it's really great to uh, give everybody a chance to have a voice and to hear what others are doing, and and it is bigger than just uh, the the large OEMs and the and the big name companies that we all know. That there's a lot of uh, lifeblood happening. Um, well, I sometimes tell people I don't have a business I have a hobby that's out of control <laughs> I like that that's that's well said that's very fair was well, there anything else that uh, you would think would be good for um, fellow car fanatics like us to hear or I'll give you the the final word the final lap well the car hobby has been good to me uh, it's been a, a business in in the used auto parts business for uh, a lot of years and it's taking care of our family, but the the car hobby is the frosting on the cake in that that's where I've met the, the interesting people uh, and the the people that uh, uh, have put color into my life. I find it we're fortunate to be in a hobby that really is all about the people and about uh, um the coming together. I like how you said it's the conduit or the connector of, of friendships and people. The uh, there are some some strong friendships that have uh, that have helped me out in other fields of life beyond the car because I knew the right person. I you know I knew which phone call to make and and who to talk to. And that's it. And and if we and I always look at it like, um, and if they don't have the answer, they will find the answer and work with you to, to get it. So that's that's pretty neat. Now I am glad to hear that. Absolutely. Well, Ed, thank you so very much. I, this has been a, a great interview. I've I've learned much more than I even expected to. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, well, great. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it, uh, like I said, it's it just, uh, it's, it's been a, a fun path we've, that we've traveled. That's, that's the way to look at it. Everything is a journey, and, and we continue on that uh, as we go. Uh, that's great. We, uh, we live life forward, and we understand it in reverse. <laughs> that's so true. That is very, very true. All right, Ed, and I wish you a pleasant rest of your day and weekend. Take care. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Okay, we are back to Studio A. Definitely would like to thank Ed for his time and for sharing his story. And for me, I learned quite a bit about the car recycling business in our discussions, both during and and previous to the interview with Ed. So I really uh, thank Ed for his his time and being an official member now of the Cars of Carlisle community and, and part of the big family here. What better time now to add to that knowledge than to give the trivia answer for this week's question, and that is this. Well, let me just uh, refresh on what the question itself was. We had asked, in each year, how many cars reach their end of life and are recycled globally? And the four choices were 11 million, 15 million, 27 million, or 43 million vehicles. The answer is C. 
27 million. That's right. On average, across the world, approximately 27 million cars have reached their end of useful life. And from that, all of the, all of the, the materials, what have you, are, are recovered and recycled. And I uh, did a little more research on what, uh, obviously, vehicle recycling is the, is the current vernacular for dismantling of vehicles for spare parts at the end of their life, uh, sourcing those parts, um, and then being able to uh, reuse and recycle whatever's possible and, and disposing of that which is not. But the, the names uh, and the business outlets and, and the entrepreneurial uh, businesses that really generate from that, you've probably heard cars. Um, spare parts supplier, auto dismantling yard, wrecking yard, but most recently it's uh, really going along the lines of either auto recycling or vehicle recycling. And for the most part, vehicle recycling has always occur occurred to some degree, but in recent years, the OEMs and the manufacturers themselves have become much more involved in the process, and, would, and that is seen especially, as you heard, uh, in Europe. But in the U.S., approximately 12 to 15 million vehicles reach that end of life each and every year, uh, and that then has really generated what is the 16th largest industry sector in the United States. It is a 25 billion, with a B, 25 billion dollar a year uh, business to the U.S. national GDP. So I thought that was pretty interesting, particularly that this 25 billion dollar a year business also employs about 100,000 Americans. So that is this week's trivia question and answer. That being said, my friends, the finish line is fast approaching. Unfortunately, that means we've reached the end of this week's road trip. However, you in particular decide to support the Cars of Carla Network, we'd like to thank you in advance, whether you are sharing with others, rating us five stars on iTunes, writing a positive review, subscribing so you have this in your queue each and every Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, or even donating via PayPal, which is uh, you can find it at paypal.me forward slash cars of Carlisle. Regardless, we thank you for continuing to be part of this, contributing, and being a fan and a member of the, this, uh, this family. As it is in each episode, we truly can't wait to have you come back and join us again on next week's audio road trip. Just remember, this is your podcast. We just happen to be in the driver's seat behind the steering wheel. But feedback is king. Therefore, we always welcome your voice. Let us know what we can do to make it even stronger and better. Content ideas, we welcome it all. Email us at carsofcarlisle.outlook.com and I personally will read every, and do read every single email. Because together, it is all about car community, car culture. Until next week, I'll remind all of you, our friends, to drive well, be well, take care.